Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Please wait till after the credits for an important Agora-related announcement. As you know, this podcast is primarily supported by donors and patrons, and when people donate or become patrons, they are given honor and praise in the form of titles and honors. This month, we recognize Chanel, who shall be known from now forward as Abbas Chanel, the arsonist. If you wish to become a patron or a donor for this podcast, head to the podcast website, wittenberg westphaliapodcastweeblycom and go to the store page. If you scroll past the useless store button, you will find buttons that will take you to PayPal or Patreon. Now, we have a important correction to discuss this month. It's a little bit lengthy, so I wanted to discuss it now before we got into the show. Listener Benjamin Sendler uh, got in touch to discuss the podcast footnote about the Rodinite Jewish merchants that uh, we talked about in the last episode. He had some concerns about the way I presented the material and some, some corrections and clarifications, and we've discussed them, and I just wanted to share with you all the product of that, that discussion. The first point of clarity is that I made it sound like the different Jewish communities were disagreeing over theological issues, potentially. That wasn't the case. The, the, it wasn't so much a disagreement as much as it was a differing levels of contact. McCormick, in his book, presented this in terms of different economic spheres. Uh, the Jews in Spain were likely involved in trading with North Africa and along the North African coast, whereas the Jews in Francia would have had trouble engaging directly with the Arab world, and so they tended to communicate with the Arab world via the trade contacts between Francia and Egypt uh, through Venice. What ended up happening was that the Jews in Spain had direct contact with Baghdad, whereas the Jews in Francia had better contact with the Jews in the Levant, which was right by Egypt. And there were differing uh, schools, Jewish schools, in those two locations as it happened. And so the attacks tended to resolve themselves into just going to different sources to re resolve disputes. Now, these two schools did have theological disputes, but they weren't really major. So it's, it's not like there was some sort of religious war going on. Which leads to the next point, which is the dispute in southern France between the emigre uh, Spanish Jews and the, the Jews of Provence. 
I may have made that sound like it was happening in the early Middle Ages. That was actually part of an event called the Maimonides Controversy. I didn't really want to go into a full explanation, and I don't now either, because it's actually pretty long and complicated. Suffice it to say that Maimonides was a Jew from Spain, who eventually moved to North Africa, whose biggest contribution was sort of reconciling uh, Aristotelian logic with the Torah, as he saw it. And Maimonides is now considered one of the leading lights of Jewish theology, uh, but of course at the time he was considered a horrible heretic by some people. So the Jews from Spain were supporters of Maimonides, the Jews from Provence in southern France were not. This erupted into a lot of intracommunal conflict. My sources, I haven't, so I should say, I haven't delved really deeply into the Maimonides controversy. I'm going to later, but we haven't talked about religious minorities yet, so I haven't had a chance to do the research. My sources that I have consulted uh, supported the story of the Jews getting the secular authorities involved themselves. Apparently, there's some controversy about that aspect of things. Some scholars say that it was, uh, this was at the same time that the Cathar heresy was being investigated by the Inquisition. And the Inquisition may have just gone after the Maimonidean Jews on their own because they were, you know, primed to do that kind of thing. Certainly both versions of the story make sense to me, so I'm going to have to do more research myself and get back to you guys on that. The point is, though, that just from the way I've said this, the Maimonides controversy happened way later than the period that I was talking about in the last episode. I really didn't mean to imply that the minor economic sphere issue in the 8th century led directly to the Maimonides controversy. Um, certainly, that's an interesting hypothesis, but there's there's no support for it. <laughs> it was it was centuries later and you know the the economic situation had thoroughly changed by then. So just wanted to clarify that point. Uh one interesting thing that I was completely unaware of is that there weren't really rabbis in the 8th century in France. This is really interesting. I had no idea. But there were no yeshivas at that point. They were still in the process of being founded and spreading out from the Middle East, uh, from the Levant uh, and Baghdad, I guess. So uh, Benjamin pointed that out to me, that when I said that the, the rabbis of Paris were in touch with the rabbis of, of the Levant, that was incorrect, because there were no rabbis in Paris, as we would recognize them. I just meant to imply like the leaders of the community and uh, apparently they weren't rabbis so that's that's interesting i learned something so that's cool the overall point that i was trying to make was essentially that a there is no international zionist conspiracy and as such the rodinite story presented by ibn karadabe does not support the existence of one but the second part of this is that despite the fact that there is no international Zionist conspiracy, Ibn Karadabe's source remains valid and useful in determining the shape of economic activity in the early Middle Ages, as well as giving us some insight into what was going on with the Jews at the time. Even if the Jews weren't some sort of organized Rodinite tribe controlling international trade, and the slave trade in particular, there were Jews involved in trade, and long-distance trade was happening. So that's really the point, and I think that that's amply supported by the arguments made by McCormick. I may have done a disservice to that hypothesis with that aside, but I was trying to get through it quickly. Uh, just to review, the main support for my argument was that Ibn Karadabe, who was writing from the Caspian Sea region, gave a very detailed and kind of professional review of the economic geography of the caliphate, and he put forward this idea that the Rodinites were a thing that existed and that they were controlling trade, and there may have been some, some group of people called the Rodinites in the Caspian Sea region. 
The skeptical attack on the concept of the Rod Knights as he presents it is just that no one else mentions them. On the other hand, there are plenty of sources that mention other Jews uh, involved in, in long-distance international trade. So the idea that there were Jews involved in international long-distance trade is well-supported by documentary evidence. The idea that they were some sort of cabal or tribe that was controlling international trade is not supported. So uh, I hope that all makes sense. I hope you all appreciate those clarifications. And I just want to thank Benjamin Sendler, who brought all this to my attention. I really do enjoy these conversations and clarifications. They make me better, and I do enjoy the subject matter, so this is great. And I, I should just say that Mr. Sendler is an author. He's written a textbook called The Chosen Path, which is available, and you guys should check it out. It seems interesting. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading it when I get to that point in the show. Okay, and with that, uh, let's get to the show. Competitive industries are not scattered helter-skelter throughout the economy, but are usually linked together through vertical, buyer-seller, or horizontal, common customers, technology, channels, relationships. Nor are clusters usually scattered physically. They tend to be concentrated geographically. One competitive industry helps to create another in a mutually reinforcing process. Japan's strength in consumer electronics, for example, drove its success in semiconductors toward the memory chips and integrated circuits these products use. Japanese strength in laptop computers, which contrasts to limited success in other segments, reflects the base of strength in other compact portable products and leading expertise in liquid crystal display gained in the calculator and watch industries. Once a cluster forms, the whole group of industries becomes mutually supporting. Benefits flow forward, backward, and horizontally. Aggressive rivalry in one industry spreads to others in the cluster through spin-offs, through the exercise of bargaining power, and through diversification by established companies. Entry from other industries within the cluster spurs upgrading by stimulating diversity in R&D approaches and facilitating the introduction of new strategies and skills. Through the conduits of suppliers or customers who have contact with multiple competitors, information flows freely and innovations diffuse rapidly. Interconnections within the cluster, often unanticipated, lead to perceptions of new ways of competing and new opportunities. The cluster becomes a vehicle for maintaining diversity and overcoming the inward focus. Inertia, inflexibility, and accommodation among rivals that slows or blocks competitive upgrading and new entry. Quote from The Competitive Advantage of Nations by Michael Porter, published in the Harvard Business Review. Quote read by Gary Gerard of the French History Podcast. Everyone's right and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning Greetings, my name is Benjamin Jacobs, your host as we travel towards Wittenberg and Westphalia, the story of how Europe got modern. This is episode 53, Class Structure in the Middle Ages Part 3, Those Who Worked Part 2, Urbanism in the Middle Ages Part 1, Urban Theory. 
Many months ago, in the times before the Sound Education Conference, when I was young and foolish, we discussed the lives of rural peasants in the Middle Ages. In summary, the peasants of the Middle Ages lived in villages and were in some way bound to their manor. These peasants made up the vast majority of the population of Europe in the Middle Ages, especially in the early Middle Ages, and really were the engines that drove the economy. Then I said something silly about addressing cities next, and then five months passed. Now, many of you may be wondering why I chose to insert three episodes about a random topic like economics between the previous discussion of commoners in the Middle Ages and this discussion of urban commoners. Well, honestly, I didn't plan to. I had this entire episode written and even recorded at one point. Two points, actually. But as I sat there listening to it and preparing to send it to Andrew, I realized something. Discussing the subject of urbanism in the Middle Ages simply makes no sense without discussing the historiography of the medieval economy first, because the story of cities in the Middle Ages is deeply entwined with the story of the medieval economy. This is, of course, not entirely unique to the Middle Ages or even to cities. The forces of economics drive much of the form that human society takes, and the form of human settlement is no exception. But the intersection of economics and society in medieval cities is unique because of the profound way that the people who lived in cities during this time would grow in power and influence over the centuries. Ultimately, this nascent class of merchants and bankers would be labeled as the bourgeoisie by one Karl Marx, and they, arguably, did more than any other group to drive the creation of the modern world. While that concept in and of itself is certainly a topic of discussion, there's no way around the fact that there is a discussion here. Today, then, we're going to begin the process of looking at the medieval cities that helped create this profound social change. As has become something of a pattern, today's episode will be more focused on the big-picture theories of urbanism and how they relate to city formation in the Middle Ages. Next time out, I'll focus on the narrative of how cities in medieval Europe came to be and came to grow. Then in two episodes, I will discuss how people in medieval cities actually lived and how they impacted the larger story of European society as it began to inch its way into the modern world. In today's episode, and the one that follows, we'll be seeking to answer one key question. What was the origin of medieval cities? Now, can anyone guess what we need to do to answer that question? Anyone? If you said, we need to go back to the Roman Empire... That's a good guess, but that'll be next time. No, today I'm going to be getting super philosophical and asking the really fundamental questions. What is a city anyway? As with so many questions I ask on this show, the answer might seem obvious at first. Most of us have some inclination of what a city is, but finding a firm definition that's true across time and space is nearly impossible. To many of you, cities might be defined by tall buildings and certain social characteristics, but of course that would not have been present in the Middle Ages, before the availability of steel frame architecture and the invention of trendy independent coffee shops. Many modern municipalities define their own status based on the form of government they choose in their ordinances. For example, in New Jersey, the township form of government has a group of elected officials, which serves as both the executive and legislative authority, and one of whom is chosen as a mayor who has no real power and is basically the first among equals. By contrast, the City Act of 1987 provides for a directly elected mayor who serves a four-year term and for a council that consists of seven members, six elected from two wards and staggered for three-year terms, and one elected at large for a four-year term. There are three councilmen in each ward and one council member from each ward for an election every year. The mayor is the chief executive and votes only to break a tie. The mayor has veto power over all portions of any ordinance subject to override by two-thirds vote of the council. The act also provides for the delegation of executive responsibilities to a municipal administrator. The thing is, there's also three other forms of city government in New Jersey allowed under earlier versions of the state constitution, and municipalities can decide to be cities simply by choosing one of these forms of government. 
The municipality I was born in was a town. Then they switched to being a city, and they have since switched back to being a township. Nothing about this town has really changed since the 1960s, so this is all very amusing. The U.S. Census has a much more coherent definition of cityness. To the U.S. Census, an urban area has a density of over 50,000 people per square mile and an actual population of at least 5,000. This is the closest to how modern urban theorists think of the problem, except that many cities in the Middle Ages would have struggled to meet these population thresholds. In terms of medieval society and the way they saw themselves, the idea that there was a difference between a village, a town, and a city is basically just an obsession of a later generation. It's not that the people in the Middle Ages didn't conceptualize some intermediate stage between a local village and, say, the city of Rome. Obviously, there were size differences between cities, and people recognized that, and they talked about it as such, but they didn't have any really firm definitions. Commentators in the Middle Ages were always imprecise in their terminology, but it's just really anachronistic to insist on hard borders between these categories, especially when, honestly, we don't have them ourselves. We know what a city is when we see it, but I doubt any of you check with the U.S. Census or ask to see a copy of the municipal ordinances before you say, oh, that municipality over there, that's a city. Like continents, cities turn out to be social constructs, whose form shifts based on the observer's time, place, and cultural context. As a result, modern urban researchers are gradually dispensing with the idea that there are hard distinctions between cities, towns, suburbs, and rural areas. My preferred model for discussing the phenomenon of urbanism is what modern theorists describe as the network urbanism model. To summarize an entire discipline of urban research, in this model, an urban area isn't a point on a map or a place with a certain kind of government and defined borders, but an area of density that is in a constantly shifting relationship with every other area of density on the surface of the planet. A way to think of this might be in terms of thermodynamics. If you think of smoke dispersing into a room, there's areas with more density and less density, but the pressures and forces at work on the smoke are at play in the entire room. Human populations work in a similar way, except that instead of forming density patterns based on the laws of physics, density for humans is determined by the way we make choices, and the social frameworks that we form and interact with, and the natural landscape and the way we alter it and use it. Unlike smoke particles, humans have physiological and psychological characteristics that both resist and embrace entropy. We, at some level, need and crave society, even if other people can be annoying at times. By working together, we can gather and utilize more resources than any individual would be able to on their own, and the advantages that accrue as a result has meant that sociable humans are at an evolutionary advantage compared to antisocial ones. We are, at a genetic level then, social creatures. This will all tend to drive us together into clusters. On the other hand, using resources is not always a good long-term strategy if you want to stay in one place. Using food, water, and shelter means that those resources may not be available in the future or for other humans, and the waste we produce can create unhealthy conditions that breed disease. These forces tend to drive us apart, and this has also impacted our genetic predispositions. Before the development of agriculture, humans tended to prefer groups of around 50 people who would live and work communally and live nomadic lifestyles. This mode of living allowed natural resources to regenerate over time as humans moved on and avoided the creation of conditions that would encourage illness for the most part. This 50-person social preference seems to be somewhat ingrained in us genetically, although, you know, it's, it's really hard to comment on that stuff with any kind of certainty. It does seem to be something of a predisposition. 
Farming, though, allowed us to regenerate local reserves of food much more rapidly than nature would do by itself, allowing large-scale permanent settlement for the first time. Innovations in transportation, social organization, and farming technique have allowed greater and greater concentrations of people ever since. But not every place on the planet is right for permanent human settlement. I mean, just right off the bat, most of the planet's covered with water, so that doesn't work. But then there's many places that have no access to water at all. Other places have access to food and water, but the excess resources are collected and consumed elsewhere as a result of the transportation technologies that we create. Thus, the creation of an urban settlement requires a careful balance of a number of forces and the right conditions and requirements that will allow and encourage agglomerations of people. From this point of view, any urban theory is seeking to describe basically one thing, the processes and forces that cause agglomerations of people in some places and not others over the entire surface of the planet. It's simple, really. Of course, there is no grand unified theory of urbanism. No single theory or explanation can really explain everything I just said. But there are a series of theoretical frameworks that have been developed over time in a very multidisciplinary manner, pulling in observations and discoveries from various fields, including history, that help set up theoretical frameworks that help us understand what's going on and ideally help people like me in the urban planning field tweak things to make life better for people. These frameworks comprise a huge number of interacting and overlapping forces that urban theories have identified as helping explain different aspects of how and why cities work. For example, if you want to explain how transportation systems work, you need to talk about network economics. If you want to talk about the way real estate prices change over time, you talk about bid-rent theory. For right now, though, we need to talk about something extremely basic. Agglomeration economics, also known as cluster theory. Most of you are hopefully familiar with the concept of supply and demand. It is the basic theory of economics, and it describes how prices are set for goods in an ideal situation. It says that if the people supplying a good have more of it than there are people who want the good at a given price, then some of the suppliers will be left with extra, so they will drop the price, and that will encourage more buyers to acquire the good than would have done so otherwise. And of course, the reverse is true as well. If there are more buyers than goods, the suppliers will raise the price until only the people willing to pay that amount are able to acquire the good. Simple enough. This view of economic exchange is, of course, highly idealized. It basically assumes that all buyers and all suppliers have a perfect understanding of the availability of the goods in question, the inherent worth of the goods in question to them. It assumes that there are no transportation issues, so basically everyone is standing in the same room together with all their stuff, and that there are no barriers to entry into the market. People will just magically appear as soon as prices get too high. What agglomeration economics does is it takes supply and demand theory and places it into a geographic context. All of a sudden, the buyers and the sellers of goods have a huge barrier to entry. They have to find each other across the entire expanse of the planet. So imagine, if you will, that there are buyers and suppliers, but they are spread perfectly evenly out across a featureless plane. There are resources available on this plane, but they're not spread out evenly. One place has iron, one place has sheep. So some of the people who are out there have iron, some people out there have sheep, because it's, it's near them. But... Most places do not have iron and sheep at the same time. Some of you may be imagining settlers of Catan, and that's fine, but please focus. So, there's a whole bunch of people, and they have sheep, and a whole bunch of people that have iron, and they want to trade. So far, so basic. So they need to find each other and move their goods around with them as they try and find each other. And this, this has a cost. There's uh, iron is really heavy, the sheep need to eat, so... 
it's really important that you do this as efficiently as possible, otherwise you'll end up dying of exhaustion if you're trying to carry the iron or your sheep will be eaten. So you need to do this efficiently. A mechanism needs to be found so that buyers and sellers can be in the same place at the same time. Today we do this in buildings called stores. If I want to buy some tasty lamb, I know to go down to my local grocery store, and there will probably be some there. Buyers, namely me, and the sellers, the people who own the grocery store, have made an arrangement where the seller will put the lamb in a certain location, namely the grocery store, and if I go to that location, I can buy some. But there is one more complicating factor to consider. As Einstein tells us, finding a single location in space is not enough. Buyers and sellers also need to come together at the same time as well. If I want lamb at 4.30 in the morning and I go to the grocery store, I will be out of luck. The seller will be at home sleeping, and so I will not be able to buy the lamb. This need to bring people together at the right place at the right time is simple, but as you add in variables, it becomes extremely powerful in explaining why some places develop into cities and others do not. If there is a thing that is going to bring people together to a place, and that place has all the other variables needed to sustain a population, that place is likely to start gathering people together. As people agglomerate into a relatively small area, it becomes increasingly efficient to conduct economic activity in that location. So let's keep going with this sheep and iron thing. Say we have a spot that has become a place where people trade iron for sheep. All the sheep farmers know that if they go to that place, there will be people interested in giving them iron in exchange. Iron miners know that this is a good place to go to find people who will buy iron in exchange for sheep. As word spreads that this is a good place to trade iron, people will start hauling in iron from further afield. The same will happen for the sheep. New industries will eventually start to develop to help people with the transportation of iron and sheep. And, you know, sheep need to eat, and so secondary industries will show up, like bringing in hay to feed the sheep. These secondary industries can develop tertiary industries. People may start combining the straw that they've been feeding the sheep with mud from the sheep pens, and then next thing you know, a brick-making business will develop. People start using the wood from the iron smelting to also make boats. The possibilities are fractal-like in complexity and endlessly fascinating. This tendency to agglomerate as a convenient way to unite customers with uh, producers also helps explain many things about the forms that cities take as they develop. If a brick-making factory starts in a certain part of the city, and I'm a brick-maker, I know that if I go to that part of the city, there will be people looking to buy bricks, and there will also be a huge pool of trained brick-makers from the brick-making plant that already exists. There will also be people selling mud and straw. So even though I might be in competition with the more established brick-making businesses, setting up shop in this area still ends up being cheaper and more efficient than setting up in another part of the city or way out in the countryside where there's no customers and there's no supply chains. And that's why you get areas within cities that specialize in certain industries, like the garment district in New York City or a jewelry quarter. We might think that these businesses want to avoid competition by, you know, not setting up cheek by jowl with each other, but it turns out that the advantages outweigh the disadvantages sometimes. Even today, there's places like Silicon Valley in California and the Route 1 corridor in New Jersey that show that despite all our innovation in terms of technology and transportation and all that stuff, agglomeration economics are alive and well and continue to help define how our economy works. So agglomeration economics and cluster theory helps explain why people come together when they start interacting to trade and form cities. But not every spot on the face of the planet where two people run into each other will become a city. Part of the reason for this is that even though agglomerations definitely create production economies, they also create a variety of diseconomies. 
As people come together to use resources, they tend to use them up. This may require some resources to be brought in from the outside, something that requires transportation assets or the construction of transportation assets. So our forming medieval settlement will rapidly reach the point where the local farmland within a convenient walk can no longer support the population of the settlement. The food will have to be just brought in by cart, pack animal, or by ship. In modern times, food can move halfway around the world before spoilage sets in, but this was often not the case in the past. In the Middle Ages, a city that didn't have some sort of transportation access or whose immediate vicinity was infertile would just not be able to feed its population. Similar issues existed in terms of the provision of water, and as a result of this need for transportation and potable water, almost all medieval European cities were founded along rivers. And of course, while I'm presenting this in terms of basic items of necessity like food and water, it should be understood that for a city to agglomerate and thrive economically, there is going to be a need to transport trade goods as well. So that's another reason for foundation along a river or something like that. On a related note, it's an important truth, too often forgotten, that every act of human consumption has an equal and opposite reaction in the production of waste. Beyond the more prosaic implications of this statement, it should also be remembered that industries, even traditional craft industries, produced waste outputs that are not always safe to have around. And even when they are, like, relatively benign, you still don't want just, like, a pile of boxes and straw everywhere. For very small settlements, this might not be a concern. The production of filth and pollution will become exponentially more dangerous and unpleasant as more people enter an area and more activities start to be performed. If this is not dealt with, it will gradually impose a cap on an urban area's population by encouraging outbreaks of illness, infant mortality, deformity, etc. Lastly, there's the issue of congestion. As more people want to cram themselves into a smaller and smaller area, it becomes harder and harder to conduct basic life activities, let alone economic ones. Human beings have developed a number of ingenious techniques to allow more and more people to live comfortably in a small area, generally known as tall buildings, but the problem of congestion in terms of economic activity and transportation is something that even now we struggle with today. This discussion of the economies and possibly more importantly the diseconomies of agglomeration lead us to a second theoretical framework that we need to discuss today, that of central place theory. This is an old theory, but a good theory. Essentially, as people start pulling together into a location, and as agglomerations occur, the agglomeration will begin to attract people selling and buying goods from the surrounding area. Within the settlement, the congestion generated will be too high to engage in any kind of really profitable agricultural activity. However, the large concentration of potential buyers for agricultural goods within the settlement will mean that anywhere just outside of the settlement uh, will be a prime area to produce agricultural goods and have a very, very short shipping window. Within these zones outside of the settlement, there will be an area where it'll be more profitable to engage in agricultural activities than any other kind of craft or service industry. This band of agricultural area, however, uh, can only be as big as a farmer can travel in a day's journey from the settlement, for what I think are obvious reasons. Given the technology of the Middle Ages, the size of this hinterland tended to be pegged at the distance a peasant could travel on an ox cart at the time, which was generally at around six and a quarter miles. The flip side of this is that beyond six and a quarter miles, you get to the range where it's no longer practical for farmer to farm and live in the settlement, 
and it starts to become possible for additional settlements to become founded. As a result, sort of mathematically, the people who came up with this theory tended to predict that every 12 and a half miles or so uh, within a, a circular radius, you'd end up finding different settlements. And that's more or less borne out. Although, of course, uh, nowhere in the world almost is a featureless geographic plane, so there tends to be some skew to this. This would all basically be predicted by what we have already said about cluster theory. There's an advantage in conducting trade in a certain place, and once that starts to happen, anywhere that's not that place is less attractive. But then, not all of these settlements are made equally. Some of these settlements will have access to resources in their hinterland that others need, or a settlement might just be better at doing some kind of craft or performing a certain kind of service. Let's say that all the settlements in an area are producing sheep and iron, but only one has figured out how to produce bricks. That settlement will tend to draw in people from the other settlements who want to buy bricks. As the settlement grows, it will tend to draw smaller settlements into its economic hinterland, as the smaller settlements progressively turn to the larger ones for goods and services that cannot be procured locally. Inevitably, some local producers will be put out of business by competition with businesses in the larger settlements, because the businesses in the larger settlements will be able to operate more cheaply, and that is where the most skilled producers will tend to set up shop. Over time, a hierarchy will theoretically emerge of economic clusters of larger and larger size, with the smallest engaged in only a few economic functions and the largest performing a wide variety of functions with large economic hinterlands. In the Middle Ages, this hierarchy was limited by geography and by the transportation and communication technologies of the time, but of course in modern times, almost all cities are part of a globe-spanning network of urban clusters. In practice, the hinterlands predicted by central place theory are much more complex and diffuse than the kinds of mathematical framework some theorists looked for in the past. A lot of complexity comes from the fact that there is an interaction between different transportation technologies and different commodities. For example, a person in a modern city seeking to sell their labor to a customer or an employer has a huge number of options when it comes to determining how to travel. They could walk, they could bike, they could drive, take a bus or a train. They could even just stay home and use the internet to sell their labor remotely. For goods that need to be moved physically along a supply chain, there are still numerous options like trains, water shipment, or air freight that can be taken into account. The urban clusters that develop large competitive advantages in modern times can be thought of as having multiple overlapping hinterlands, specific to what modes of transportation are most appropriate for a given commodity. Clusters with a smaller number of functions tend to focus on one or two commodities and tend to only have a smaller number of hinterlands, if you will. In the Middle Ages, things were much simpler. Goods had to be moved by walking, by pack animal, by ox cart, or by ship. In addition, many of the most valuable goods at the time had a nasty habit of spoiling after a certain amount of time, limiting the distance over which they could be traded. As a result, local hinterlands were much more important and much more coherent and obvious to a casual observer. At the same time, we saw in the last few episodes that long-distance trading of commodities did occur, so even in the Middle Ages, there were cities with regional and even international hinterlands for some goods. This hinterland of Venice in the slave trade, for example, stretched up the Amber Road and down into Egypt, for example. It needs to be said that these two theoretical frameworks of cluster theory and central place theory are extremely abstract and only slightly less idealized than just supply and demand. Central place theory in particular has come under a lot of criticism for being overly abstract. There's a sense in which they are so general that, like the predictions of a horoscope, they are inevitably correct. 
That said, they provide a valuable framework for understanding the way the world works that is valuable in its ability to be descriptive of social processes in a way that horoscopes are not. As a planning professional, I sometimes use these tools predictively, albeit from a standpoint where my trust in them remains dubious and heavily subject to new data and local knowledge from residents. Two things need to be added to our understanding of these theoretical frameworks before we close for the day. Time and culture. These economic and social theories are only one part of the equation of what produces a settlement and what size it grows to. These are theoretical frameworks that only describe the sort of underlying structures that govern human interactions. They are, if you will, the hardware of human society. Within this framework, there are things like culture and political policies that also impact the way we acquire and distribute both the resources and the disadvantages that come with living in urban places. We might think of this as the software of urban systems. It might seem like cultural and political decisions are secondary distractions from the core functions of economic laws and geographic carrying capacity, but that view fundamentally misunderstands what we're talking about. Economics describes how we negotiate exchanges of value. It doesn't describe what we value, why we value it, or what we do with the things we value. As we will see in the following episodes, human settlements are often called into existence by culture and politics, and once they are called into existence, humans have the capacity to use technology and collective effort to reshape the environment and change the incentives of their surroundings. For example, one might be tempted to say that if a human needs 150 square feet of shelter to live comfortably, you could only ever fit 140-odd people into a half-acre of land. And yet we humans went and invented buildings with more than one floor, and now in Manhattan we have a building with around 300 people living on half-acre of land. And then, of course, in the transportation sector, we, puny little things that are made to maybe go five miles an hour, find ourselves hurtling through space at hundreds of miles an hour in big tin cans that we built. It's insane, and kind of disconcerting. This infrastructure, in terms of buildings and roads and airplanes, may not be permanent, but this kind of built environment has an impact on the incentives of an area that persists over time, and in many cases well past the lifespan of a human being. The choices that are made by people as a result of cultural and social structures are thus manifest into a physical reality that effectively changes the geographic carrying capacity of an area. If you will, the software can rewrite itself so effectively that it can start to affect the hardware. And so one of the key factors that impacts the development of a settlement is the unique history of that location, the choices that have been made there in the past, and how those choices come forward to affect the present. Okay, I think that's enough theory for one day, so let's wrap up. Today we discuss the concept of agglomeration economics, also known as cluster theory. This theory explains how cities function economically by exploring the advantages and disadvantages that accrue when human beings live together in a relatively small area. This concept is complemented for modern urbanists by a concept called central place theory, which describes how settlements will tend to create economically dependent hinterlands bound together by a hierarchy of ever more economically dense clusters. Next time out, we will take all this theory and begin to apply it to the creation of a narrative. How does all this economy talk fit in with the macroeconomic discussions we had last time and the physical and documentary evidence available to modern historians? And how much, if at all, does the modern evidence and theoretical framework fit with the received narrative? To learn the answers, you'll need to listen to the next exciting episode of Wittenberg to Westphalia, Wars of the Reformation.
And that is why tableware was so important for the founding of the country. Oh, that is fascinating. I can't believe you learned that from a podcast. The world really needs more outlets for this sort of infotainment. Everybody stop what you're doing and listen. What? What? This is not a drill. You asked for more outlets for high quality infotainment and you're going to get more than you can handle. The Agora Podcast Network is bringing together names like Mike Duncan, David Crowther, and Kevin Stroud to the same place at the same time at a convention devoted to educational podcast content. No, no way. way! Way. On June 29th, from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m., Agora is bringing you the Intelligent Speech Conference at the Norwood Club, located at 241 West 14th Street, New York, New York. Will it just be those three? No! In addition to Mike Duncan of the History of Rome and Revolutions, David Crowther of the History of England, and Kevin Stroud of the History of English, many of your favorite Agora Podcast Network hosts will be there, including Royfield Brown of Mid-Atlantic, Xander and Eric Fogg of Reconsider, Steve Guerra of the History of the Papacy Podcast, uh, Cloud Myron Guzer of the Cannonball Podcast, Aziz Alduri of the History of Westeros, Raven of the Tiny Vampires Podcast, and Benjamin Jacobs of Wittenberg to Westphalia. Wow, those are all amazingly talented individuals. Really talented individuals. Some of them are amazingly talented even more than others, but surely <laughs> there are too many for one day. Have you never been to a convention before? There will be three conference rooms featuring panels, talks, and laser tech. Well, okay, there won't be any laser tag, but definitely a full day of panels and talks from a dozen of the best podcasters on the planet. Hmm, that does sound good, but what if I get hungry? Relax. The $175 tickets will include dinner with your favorite podcasters, and the $125 tickets will include access to the Norwood Club for the day. Wow, I'm sold, but how do I get there? The Norwood Club is conveniently located near a variety of exciting subway stops. If you want to drive your car in Manhattan for some reason, you can do that too, but parking is expensive. I recommend the train. What an amazing idea! And some fine urban planning knowledge. But does this Manhattan have anything to do other than the convention? Are you kidding? Oh, you're not. You're not kidding. Okay. Um, well, Manhattan is one of the most exciting places on the planet, and the Norwood Club is located on the borders of Greenwich Village, one of the key cultural destinations in the city. Only a few long, long blocks from the High Line, and a short subway ride from dozens of museums, restaurants, and shopping. Make it a weekend trip and have an amazing time. Wow, I'm booking my hotel now. Where can I get tickets to Agora's Intelligence Speech Conference? To go to the conference and see Mike Duncan, David Crowther, and Kevin Stroud live and in person, simply go to intelligencespeechconference.com. Awesome! Oh, awesome! Just for the record, they're both giving a thumbs up. You can't see it because it's an audio medium, but I just thought you should know because it's very impactful. But remember... Mike Duncan, David Crowther, and Kevin Stroud, together in the same place at the same time. And to learn more, you can go to intelligentspeechconference.com. Hold up. 
Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. 